I'm Scott Kerr, and you're listening to Facing the Giants, a podcast where I speak to today's luxury entrepreneurs about taking on the Goliaths of the industry. My guest on Facing the Giants is Vanessa Barboni Halleck, founder and CEO of B Corp certified women's luxury clothing brand, Another Tomorrow. Launched in 2020, the mission of Another Tomorrow is to create a compassionate company with a three-pronged approach of providing a foundational wardrobe of ethically and responsibly made clothing, education, and a platform for activism. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you so much for having me. So prior to founding Another Tomorrow, you were a managing director at Morgan Stanley, where you held several leadership roles in the emerging markets institutional securities business. Where did your interest in the issue of sustainability in the fashion industry come from? Out of left field is the best way to put it. Um, You know, I think sustainability um, is something that I kind of just grew up with in terms of it being in the water. I grew up in these small, pretty progressive college towns. My my dad was kind of a a techie and a sociology professor. My mom was an artist. And so it was kind of part of the part of the ethos, part of the community. Um, And then, you know, as you mentioned, I I ended up on on Wall Street again, very, very much by accident, uh, where I spent the bulk of my career. And and I was always trying to figure out how I was going to merge my my day job with moving the world in a direction that I felt was uh, relevant and purposeful and, and helped to get us kind of back within these planetary boundaries that we've overstepped. And um, I left and did a, a degree uh, to go to do a degree in uh, energy and environmental policy uh, back in 2007. Then I went back to finance and long story short, uh, finally in, uh, in 2017, I realized it was time for me to really make a move if I really believed in the things that I said I believed in. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was going to pursue a career in ESG and finance. And I ended up taking a sabbatical and Morgan Stanley was amazing. They were super generous, um, ostensibly to do just that. And it was in that process when I was just trying to research every industry, frankly, more deeply to understand how they were throwing all these negative externalities that I completely fell down the rabbit hole of um, sustainability and fashion. And, and I was just floored, really. I mean, I, I was, it was the one industry that, that really surprised me because I've been following many and the magnitude and the complexity and, and what I perceived to be both a real lack of regulation with teeth, um, mm-hmm. a real lack of brand leadership um, outside the outdoor space and uh, kind of a lack of imagination and innovation around new business models. So are you interested in fashion before you even got in the fashion business from a personal standpoint? Uh, from a personal standpoint, yes, but that was kind of the that was kind of the end of it. I mean, as a woman in finance, it was sort of one of my few areas of, of personal kind of creative expression. So um, you know, I certainly had a, a close relationship with fashion as as many women do, as many people do. but uh, but that was kind of the, that was kind of it. So you've stated that the mission of Another Tomorrow is to, quote unquote, create a truly sustainable and compassionate company with a three-pronged approach of providing a foundational wardrobe of ethically and responsibly made clothing, education, and a platform for activism to amplify our collective voices. So what makes your mission different from other sustainable fashion brands that say transparency is their guiding principle too? We really try and look at fashion as a system. 
And, and I welcome all approaches because I think it all it all matters. And so, you know, there's nothing that we're doing that we think is like, you know, better than it's just how we think about it. And, you know, if you look at fashion as a system, um, so many things need to be reinvented, reimagined. Certainly sourcing is, is one of them. And so we've really kind of taken farm to table to farm to closet and making that level of kind of farm level traceability our, our gold star. Um, the other speaking to transparency is, is another big one for us. So really driving normative change around being able to activate that product and see exactly how and why it was made the way it was and its impacts. Um, but we don't kind of stop there. You know, we certainly believe that circularity is paramount. And one of the best ways that you can reduce the impact of a garment is just increase its life cycles. You know, I think over 80% of garments end up in landfill or incinerated in, in their lifetime. And, and the vast majority of that within the first year. So by making, treating clothing as an asset and having our own in-house authenticated resale program, we're really furthering that uh, part of the mission that way. Um, and then finally, and this I think is crucially, crucially important for the industry. This is such a speculative industry. And, and I think a lot of the ways just comes from, um, you know, we call it overproduction, but it's really misproduction. And so we're really excited to be um, testing new production models as well to really align supply and demand. So in short, you know, we, we really, we take kind of a system, a systemic uh, kind of kitchen sink approach to it because um, we think that that is indeed what, uh, what the industry really requires to change and where we can't make the impacts as much as we would like directly or, or where we feel like, you know, voluntary action is not sufficient, which is the case, I think, in most, in most areas, we were also really engaged around legislation. And you launched online in 2020 with an 18-piece collection alongside creative director Jane Chung, a former creative director at DKNY. And the timing wasn't ideal as it was shortly <laughs> before COVID hit and quickly people were working from home and the state of fashion was essentially sweatpants. And Another Tomorrow debuted with a line of more refined tailored pieces, not exactly what people were shopping for at the time. So how did you quickly adjust to not only start generating awareness for the brand and its mission, but actually generate sales? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That was such a wild uh, starting point. I mean, I will say that we were, we were really blessed in terms of the industry's reception. And so from an awareness perspective to this day, super honored that, you know, our launch article was in the New York times and we had a great British Vogue piece shortly mm -hmm. thereafter and then Bloomberg. And so we were able to get, you know, get the word out in a really high quality way. And, and at a time when I think people's level of curiosity was already there, you know, kind of even pre pre pandemic. So that was, that was really exciting and really important. Um, and we launched also uh, alongside matches fashion, um, who's been such a close partner for us. Um, and I, I really have so much respect for the way that they've partnered with brands throughout their life cycle. So that was hugely important, but from a product assortment standpoint, as you highlighted, uh, what we came to market with and what the customer needed at that time, um, there was, you know, there was some misalignment that first year. Mm -hmm. And, and we had to make some tough decisions in terms of how quickly were we going to kind of pivot what we were producing or were we going to kind of take some things off the table? And, and that's where we really decided to play the long game. And, you know, we, we didn't want to become a sweatpants brand uh, just because that was ostensibly what people needed at the time. And so when it came time to make the decisions as to whether we were going to move into production for that fall, 
we really took the vast majority um, kind of off the table. Um, and luckily, you know, that was done at a time where we didn't have to cancel any orders. It was just, you know, we, we hadn't put it in yet. So, and we decided we kind of waited it out. Um, we ended up doing some surgical redesigns around product that we thought would be super relevant at that time. That was actually the genesis of our archival uh, denim program um, that was such a huge hit. Uh, but we really, we decided to be patient that first year. Uh, because we do believe that product relevance is is absolutely crucial, um, but we didn't want to put a lot out there that didn't make sense, and equally, we didn't want to we didn't want to completely rewrite the book on our brand identity. So, take us through the sourcing process and how you find the right partners to meet your strict criteria of humans, animal, and environmental welfare. So, it, it really does depend on the raw material supply chain, but I can give you a sense of, of how it started, um, in particular in the case of wool, and then give you some examples from there. So, right. um, you know, it was interesting when we started out and we had a really clear matrix of decision making, it was very, you know, science based. Uh, we thought that we would rely more on certifications. And when we started to ask questions, specifically for me in, in areas where, um, where animals were involved and I wanted to really understand the treatment on farm, uh, we weren't getting a lot of answers. And so we very quickly realized that we wanted to have this direct farm level traceability where the impact starts, because fashion is indeed largely an agricultural product or made of plastic, and a lot of people forget that. And so we actually started our sourcing journey, um, believe it or not, in Tasmania, Australia. <laughs> and uh, wow. yeah, it was pretty wild. Uh, built some relationships with um, ethical and regenerative farmers in Tasmania. Uh, realized that you know, we could buy the wool directly from these farms that we really believed in and, and, and did have certifications, but also went far beyond that in terms of regenerative ag and, and animal, uh, animal welfare. And then we built it from we built it up from there. So then we had to find mills in Italy who were you know willing to basically use our wool um, and also process it from an energy, water, and dye utilization standpoint in a responsible way, with making exquisite quality materials. Um, and then we had to find manufacturers who were paying living wages to manufacture the product. And you know, there was a lot of nuance kind of based on the supply chain in terms of how we put all those steps together. But that's essentially, that's essentially it. That's how we did it for, you know, all of our wool wovens, all of our wool knitwear. Um, for organic cotton, we actually ended up um, establishing a partnership with a mill that could give us, um, you know, farm level traceability and, you know, visited uh, connections also directly to, to meet the, the farmers. Um, I still text with one of them hmm. um, and, and built the organic cotton supply chain in a very similar way, but starting at the yarn level in terms of like our, our uh, kind of purchase point. So it differs by raw material, but really that's kind of the cornerstone philosophy. And we've had to look at the entirety of the supply chain in order to, in order to do this. Can you describe who your customer is? Are, are they more of the types who just are strongly driven by trends or the activist types who kind of pride themselves on purchasing only ethical, sustainable products? You know, I think the level of awareness around sustainability and fashion is still incredibly low. And so the number of customers that are true diehard sustainable fashion customers is like, kind of on like the, the head of a pin. Mm -hmm. And, and so what we find for us is um, we really kind of have two different groups of customers. We have that luxury, that kind of true luxury customer tends to be like mid thirties and up. Um, she 
doesn't mean she's like dressed head to toe in Gucci every day, right. um, but she knows what it means to really invest in, in quality and in pieces that have really long life cycles, kind of treating clothing as an asset. And what we find based on our conversations is that the first touch points for her with a brand, it's, it's really about falling in love with the product and the, and the brand first. And then we find that this is a customer who really learns about sustainability through us. Um, and we love that. We love that. Um, we also have, I would say, generally speaking, slightly younger demographic customer who is, is kind of been brought up a little bit more with sustainability in the ecosystem, more sensitized to that, oftentimes finds us kind of through that lens of like best in class sustainable brand. Um, and then, you know, might buy whatever, you know, whatever makes sense for where she is in her life cycle, a little bit more our re-commerce customer. So it's a, it's a broad, it's a broad, broad range. Um, but one of the things that I think that, you know, when I was first starting another tomorrow and was looking kind of through the graveyard of ideas, <laughs> one of the things that I really found was that I think a lot of brands with a sustainability ethos, they, they rely too much on that being kind of the first point, the first purchase filter. And it rarely, rarely is. And that's okay because ultimately the customer has to love that product in order to use that product and use that product in perpetuity. So we really think, um, you know, product is crucial. Brand is crucial. Also interesting way that you're engaging with customers affixed to the label of every another tomorrow garment is a scannable QR code that links customers to a product ID page that offers transparency on the history of the product. You know, it's like a digital brochure. So are customers using this function? Yeah. Yeah. Which has been super cool. Um, you know, we're, we're so excited to see a much higher level of engagement around this than we had, um, you know, initially anticipated. So to, to provide some context, um, everything that we've ever made has been born digital and that manifests in this unique QR code on every single garment. And, and the very first use case was consumer facing transparency. It was that supply chain transparency um, that we wanted to provide and really sort of shift the norms in the industry. Um, but what we found was that there are so many other use cases and, and we always signal from the very beginning that we'd be launching resale. And what we love is that we can leverage that same QR code to authenticate the product for re-commerce. Right. And so the customer can scan it and activate it if they want to resell the product, they put in the product quality, they see exactly what it would sell for. If they agree to that, uh, then they get a shipping label, they ship to us. So transparency, uh, authenticated, resale, and now also repurchase. So maybe not so much that blazer, you don't maybe you don't need two of them, but for that t-shirt that you fall in love with and you just want to buy a second one, you can also utilize the QR code for that as well. And like dozens of brands born on the internet, in the summer of 2021, you opened up your first brick and mortar retail store on Bleecker Street here in New York City. How did you translate your brand's ethos into an actual physical form? You know, I think the, the brand expression in a physical context is such a unique opportunity and a challenge. Um, and, you know, for us, it started with needing to bring it to life from a materiality perspective that was in harmony with everything that we'd done in our supply chain. So, you know, the, the furniture expressed our aesthetic vision, but it all had to be sourced and like the, you know, the carpet had to be sourced and I mean, everything had to be sourced in a way that was consistent with our values. And, and that proved really uh, challenging, uh, you know, somewhat unsurprisingly so, and, and also opened a real eye to the opportunity and the imperatives in the interior design space. 
Um, but we ended up using repurposed fabrics. We used linen from a mill that we'd already vetted. Um, the carpet came from um, uh, corn, uh, sorry, coconut husks, uh, which was quite interesting. We did a bunch of vintage furniture, um, but all of it had to be brought to life at that same level of aesthetic and quality excellence that we pride ourselves on in the product. So that was a big piece of it. Um, and then we also really made it about community. So we partnered with two, kind of like the OG of clean, um, ethical uh, beauty brands that we had in the store mm -hmm. uh, to support what they were doing. We had a partnership with a great gallery called Speroni Westwater around some art in the in the store. So we really looked at it as this like kind of community hub where every single touch point really mapped back to you know who who we are at our core. And you recently opened up a flagship store in a prime location at Rockefeller Center, just in time for the holiday crowd there. How, is, <laughs> how has uh, foot traffic been so far? And, and I, I would imagine many of them are discovering your brand for the first time. And what's the, what's been their reaction? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful place to kind of meet the world, uh, truly. And, and yeah. so that's been, a, that's been a fantastic opportunity for us to tell our story, for people to touch and feel product, for them to activate that QR code, um, which is really exciting. Um, so it's, it's been fantastic. We also have a partnership um, in the arts um, with Isolde Brillmeyer and uh, Sarah Harrelson are curating the art in the space, which has been continuity there. But yeah, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a wonderful place for people to discover the, the brand and, and build that community around it. The, one of the big reasons though, that we decided to make that move is, um, you know, we just, uh, we love the vision of Tishman Spire for reinventing Rockefeller Center for New Yorkers. And so uh, we decided to jump on board with this trial space there. Um, and we're going to test and learn how, how that evolves for us. Um, but they're, they've done such a beautiful job in kind of re-engineering the food and beverage merchandising mix for New Yorkers and really bringing this incredible energy back to the heart of Manhattan. So we're, yeah. we're excited to be a part of that. There was a survey that came out last year that customers care more about sustainability post-lockdown and their intent to buy sustainable fashion has increased. Yet, the respondents want the brands they already love to become yeah. more sustainable because they would rather keep buying from their favorite brands than change to alternative sustainable brands. How does another tomorrow break through from that mindset? You know, the way that we think about it is in it it kind of goes back to what I found in that, you know, graveyard of ideas is that the product and the brand has to be able to stand kind of like head to head against the best. And you cannot rely on people switching, you know, to your point based on this, you know, the survey to a more sustainable brand if they feel like they're making a compromise on the product or the brand itself. And so we have really brought you know, our line, our company to market with that in mind is that people have to feel like we're bringing them something that they need beyond just the desire for, and I shouldn't say just because it's a big thing, beyond the desire for their values to be aligned in their product. So that's the way that we tackle it. It's really through exceptional product um, that really resonates with something that the customer is actually missing, areas where they're dissatisfied or where, where their product and brand experiences could be better. And that's why we're situated where we are. I mean, I, I consider us kind of accessible luxury and, and the way that we've accomplished that is really just through kind of a direct-to-consumer lean, which is just a blended margin strategy. Uh, it's just math. 
Um, but what we found was that people were really looking for that exquisite quality of the conventional luxury brands at a better price point. And that was true for both the luxury customer. Um, and it was also true for the more contemporary customer who, who really wanted to trade up in quality, but that jump is just enormous. And so we found that you know, this really adds, adds value for that customer in addition to that opportunity for you know, values alignment. So resale has taken off across the country and you touched upon this before with another tomorrow. And fairly recently you rolled out a resale platform. Was resale always in the cards for another tomorrow? Always in the cards, uh, always in the cards. And it came out of our really early focus groups. Um, so, you know, fashion is such an interesting business. It's it's so kind of like, if you build it, they, they will come. And right. I really wanted to turn that on its head by really deeply understanding, you know, who our customer is, or at the time, prospective customer and, and where her pain points were. And what we found was that there was this incredible latent desire for a brand intermediated resale experience. And I think the best comp for that is like BMW certified pre-owned cars going to the same dealership and you have an opportunity to buy something brand new or something pre-loved, but authenticated and with that quality control. And that was what we, we found that customers really wanted. And so we decided that we wanted to bring that to fashion. And, and for us, it was just a matter of the timing because it didn't make sense for us to we didn't think it made sense for us to launch this right at our launch because you have to sell product to resell product. Mm -hmm. But we did tell people about it right out the gates because we wanted them to understand that we were going to stand by the life cycle of these products, um, their entire life cycle. And so that was something that was um, uh, that was part of our communication strategy right out, right out, right from the get go. In the intermediate period, we also launched something um, that's really resonated psychologically with with our customer, which is our size exchange program. And so, if your body changes sizes within the first year, and we're likely going to extend this, this is kind of just the testing ground. Um, if it's one of our core tailoring products that are on replenishment. Um, we will allow you to swap out that size within that first year. And, and we found that, you know, that's a big reason why clothing isn't worn. Um, it's also a big psychological pain point. You know, am I, am I going to invest in quality if I feel like my body might change? Maybe not, you know, um, too often I hear from women, you know, gosh, I'm going to go buy this, this item, you know, as fast fashion, instead of investing in it, because I think I'm going to, you know, lose 10 pounds and that's, you know, that's awful psychologically. It's awful, you know, in terms of like the potential waste around that. So we want to take that pain off the table. So just recapping, always, always on the table. It was a matter of timing, but we found this really kind of cool intermediate step where we could add a lot of value through size exchange. And then ultimately we did launch authenticated resale just the way that we'd hoped to um, in, in April of this past year. How come, um, you decided to take resale in-house as opposed to using like a third-party platform? You know, it, it was really uh, in response to what we felt the customer need was. You know, they the, the consigner uh, wanted to do it through the brand. You know, they wanted uh, that transparency. They wanted store credit. They wanted, you know, they wanted that kind of, like all of those sort of retention benefits and, and to interact with us directly. And on the buyer side, they really wanted that same level of brand experience um, they wanted to know that we stood behind that pre-loved product, um, that we could authenticate it, that we validated the quality that was being communicated. And we we believed that because we're also not sitting on you know decades of legacy 
you know, product out there in the world. And we were approaching this with a really clean slate that it was a beautiful opportunity for us to deliver exactly what that customer was looking for and felt was missing uh, without a huge operational load. And so it's actually been, it's been super streamlined for us. While there is a broad agreement on the need for change within the fashion industry, charting a practical course to sustainability at scale has been a major challenge for many established brands. Is it possible to build a successful ethical fashion brand while making a profit? Absolutely, it is. And and I think that, um, interestingly, a lot of the approaches, particularly from a business model and manufacturing standpoint, are actually really efficiency enhancing. So you think about re-commerce, for example. I mean, re-commerce, if, if, if done at least the way that we're doing it, it's super capital light and it, it's profitable and it can really add to the bottom line. Similarly, if you use really demand responsive production techniques, you're taking a lot of inventory risk off the table um, and, and that's great for business. I think where, you know, where people get stuck and which is difficult, you know, frankly, is a lot of the costs in our supply and in, in fashion supply chains have been effectively underpriced, right? Like people haven't been getting paid enough and mm -hmm. people haven't been, you know, sourcing uh, regenerative materials. And so there's, there's incontrovertible upward cost pressure when you, when you reset that. And if you have a fixed margin structure, because you've been producing in a certain way over a period of time, that's difficult, you know, all else equal, that's going to compress your margins in most cases. You know, there are some instances where recycled fibers can actually be less expensive than, than, than um, you know, virgin fibers. And so there are some definitely counterpoints to that, but that that's tricky for us because we got to build our cost structure off the back of these supply chains in the first place. You know, it was, it was definitely easier. And I have, you know, have a lot of empathy for this, this change. But I think if you look at all of these changes in the aggregate, um, it's it's not it's not clear to me that it's that it's bad for business. I think quite quite the opposite, and and in many cases it's really risk reducing. I mean, even just the knowledge of one's supply chain uh, at the level that that we have, or that you know, sustainable brands with similar approaches have. I mean, you're not you're never the last one to know when you've got an issue, right? Like you've got those relationships all the way back to the raw material side, and you can be super nimble and resilient. Another Tomorrow recently appointed Elizabeth Giardina as its new creative director to oversee the artistic direction of the brand. When will her first collection be for the brand? And Very with Elizabeth, soon. Yeah, and with Elizabeth on board, how, how do you see the brand evolving? Yeah, Liz is incredible. She had been the VP of design um, at Parenza Schooler. And, you know, she's, she's just uh, has a remarkable vision and she's a really remarkable leader, um, I would say. And um, so first collection, spring, summer 23, uh, we're thrilled to bring that to life. And I think it's a really organic evolution. You know, she comes in uh, with a tremendous amount of, I think, respect for what we've built and also with uh, with an incredible vision for how, you know, the the artistic direction is is going to evolve. And so I won't uh, I won't spoil it, but I think what people will find is is really a kind of seamless and elegant evolution of of what we've done to date with some exciting, uh, exciting new surprises. So let's look forward five years. You know, where would you like to take the brand? Are you looking to perhaps expand beyond fashion to handbags or accessories? Where do you see the brand going? 
You know, we the vision has always been for us to be a leading globally relevant brand, really at the operating at the intersection of high integrity design, sustainability, and innovation. And so when we think about additional categories, when we think when you think about high integrity design, you actually kind of give yourself permission to do a lot of different things. Um, so for us, we don't use any um any animal skins, like basically anything where the animal has to be harmed or killed uh, to, to obtain the material. And so that's definitely been a hurdle for accessories and shoes in particular. We know that there's a tremendous opportunity. So we are, we've got our eye on the ball. We've got a lot of material science uh, relationships, um, but we want to make sure that what we bring to market is not compromised from an ethics or a quality standpoint. And so we're, I wouldn't say we're in wait and see mode, but we're like in wait and test mode until we see an opportunity to really nail that. Vanessa Barboni Halleck, founder and CEO of Another Tomorrow. Thank you so much for coming on Facing the Giants. Such a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 